I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to The Andy Rowe Show. Rob Lewis was an undercover agent in Northern Ireland for the British Army. His job was to turn terrorists into informants who he'd then handle and use to gather information. We're going to hear some revelations from Rob about the tactics they used. Some were legal, some were very illegal. I hope you enjoy the episode. Once a month I get a delivery through the letterbox store. Some freshly packaged coffee from patcoffee.com. It comes directly from the farmer, so by the time I put it in my stovetop coffee maker and froth some milk, I'm drinking the freshest, most delicious coffee I've ever made. And if you go to packcoffee.com, that's P-A-C-T, coffee.com, you'll get five quid off your first bag when you create a flexible coffee subscription. And make sure you enter the code Andy Rowe at the checkout. This is really important. You'll get a discount, and you'll also show your support for this podcast so I can keep creating more content. Go to packcoffee.com and create your coffee subscription. The code is valid when you create a packed coffee plan for new customers only. Rob Lewis, thank you very much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure. So you grew up in Wales. Yep. Tell me about what that was like because you got up to quite a bit of mischief and it kind of set the scene for you to become an undercover agent, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's quite strange because my hometown was quite... A hard area and the street that I lived on has actually bred some very interesting characters. We've had a girl who was the dental technician to the royal family. Oh, there you go. Two lads who ended up in the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. Okay. A guy who ended up as the head paediatrician at Great Ormond Street. A couple of lads who played football for Wales. Three sisters who played golf for Wales, one of whom played in what was called the Curtis Cup, which is playing for Great Britain. And me and my brother. My brother was an Olympic bobsleigh. Was he? Yeah. He was yeah. in the 84 Olympics. When uh, was the Cool Runnings movie? What was that set? Uh, that you... was the Jamaican thing, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, the Jamaicans. Did he race against those guys? Yeah. My brother was actually in the 1984 Olympics at Sarajevo. Oh. And, and was there on the night that Torval and Dean did their gold Oh, no thing. way. He dines out on that quite often. Though. Has he ever been back to that? Yes. Because the, the bobsleigh track is now like a little bit of art because obviously they yeah. had the war there afterwards. It's correct. And he, now it's covered in graffiti and he, you can walk down it and stuff. He has been back there as a soldier to really? Bosnia and he went back to Sarajevo. So uh, he competed in the Olympics and then went back as a soldier. Correct. Yep. Shit. And he has photographs of himself by the old Olympic bobsleigh track that he competed at. That's pretty cool. Because he, he's quite a hard bloke, but he, he said he found it quite emotional. The the contrast of what it would yeah. have been like when he first went there. And, then and it's now a wreck. You were in a youth gang when you grew up, weren't you? Yeah, we had quite a reputation, I have to say. There was about 10 or 12 of us, and strangely enough, all 
went on to quite good careers later on. Mm. I mean, I, I've got a mate of mine who's now a vice president with IBM and he lives in New York. I've got uh, friends who became teachers, quite high-ranking army blokes and specialist army blokes. But when we were kids, yeah, we were, you know, complete pain in the backside to the local police force. Was that how you learnt your craft in, in some ways? You learnt how to be naughty. You learnt how to almost act. And Yeah, I mean, we, we had a, a little bit of a rule, really, which was rule one, don't get caught. <laughs> and that kind of... Good to see for the rest of your life. Unfortunately, later on in life, I did get caught. We'll get but... to that. We'll get to that. How did you end up in Northern Ireland originally? I was a member of a regiment called Queen's Dragoon Guards, and we were posted to Northern Ireland on a two-year residential post with families, with kids, and I went to a place called Omer, and we used to patrol out of Omer as normal infantry soldiers, even though I'm actually a, a cavalry, I'm a tank soldier by birth. So it was completely out of my mm. comfort zone. To be quite honest, I didn't want to go. At that time, the hunger strike was going on. Northern Ireland was the place where soldiers got blown up and shot at. There's the thing that it would have been hard for you to almost reconcile. You're seeing these guys going on hunger strike. I mean, they believe in their cause that strongly. Yep. And they're willing to do that. And then you're going there as in the, with the British Army. Like yeah. How do you kind of reconcile that? Especially also after Bloody Sunday. That wasn't yeah. that wasn't a good look either. But how do you kind of reconcile that as a British Bloody, officer? Bloody Sunday was way before I joined the Army. Uh, although it did have a, a bit of a, an effect on me. Because obviously I was a young teenager when that all kicked off. The hunger strike was very much part and parcel of my everyday life. Famously, the guy Bobby Sands, who was the MP for uh, for Manor and Tyrone, I was on a patrol in a place called Straban, which is just down the road from Londonderry, on the night that Sands died, oh. and it seriously kicked off because Sands had been very much in the public domain. He had died through obviously starving himself, and the whole of the Republican community went absolutely berserk. I bet they did. What yeah. did you do? What, how, did you, uh, how were you guys affected? I shot a couple of people with um, baton rounds. Baton rounds, are they uh, rubber bullets? Yeah, right, yeah, right gun. There was, like, so many of them. You know, when, when you're faced with a couple of hundred people who want to kill you and you are part of a patrol of eight blokes, then... You've got to escalate the violence to keep them back. And there's no better way to get their attention than to bang a rubber bullet down their way. <laughs> Jesus. But, uh, well, did you fire any tear gas or anything like that? Uh, or did you have anything else? No, or was it just rubber bullets? There was tear gas available, and we did have riot vans with water cannons available at our disposal. But after we let off, I don't know, maybe about 100, 200 rubber bullets, the crowd sort of, you know, dispersed, basically. What happens if you get hit by a rub rubber bullet? How bad is that? A rubber bullet, if if you've never seen one, it's quite similar to, like, a six-inch rubber penis. Right, like a, you're firing little dildos at Yeah, 
And what you do is, is that you aim about three to six foot in front of the person, so it hits the tarmac, gains momentum, and goes up. So when it catches you, uh, you know all about it. Far out. Back in the early days, I was never involved with this, but the old and bold will tell you that they also used to put AA batteries in the baton gun as well. So not only would you get the sort of rubber bullet going out, but you'd get a couple of AA batteries Should going with it as well. They could kill someone, couldn't they? Yeah, I think, I mean, we are talking late 60s, early 70s. It was a nasty place to be. How did you go from that? So you're in the, you're in the army and then you move into the special services. Yep. Talk me through that transition. Okay, I finished in Northern Ireland. I did a two-year tour there. We ended then back in a place in Essex called Saffron Walden. We went back onto light armour vehicles, which were scimitars and scorpions, did a load of retraining to go back to our normal role as a recce soldier. Um, I was lucky enough to pick up a six-month tour to go to Cyprus as part of the UN scout car squadron, which was, in all honesty, I've got a medal for it, but hey, it was a holiday. (laughs) And uh, a great place to be. I was playing rugby every other, you know, on a Wednesday and a Saturday, probably drinking far more than I should have been, but it was just a great place. However, at the end of that, I was bored. You wanted to get back into Northern Ireland and start firing dildos and batteries at the IRA. I wanted to do, inverted commas, something else. I wasn't content with being a armoured corps soldier, and I wasn't, and even though, you know, Cyprus was a seriously good laugh. A bit, yeah. When when I got back, I thought, right, okay, what am I going to do now? And I knew about special forces outfits. I knew about the Special Air Service. I knew about... The SAS, yeah. Yeah, and, and that. I didn't think I was physically fit to pass Special Air Service selection. Why not? Yeah, I mean, I was reasonably fit, but it, it always seemed to me that the SAS was something that a, a corporal from the Welsh Valleys was never going to achieve. Mm. Um so I look, I look for something else, and I found out that there were a couple of other specialised units, one being 14 int and one being the Fru. And so I went and spoke to my adjutant, who, who I knew quite well, and uh, oh, actually I spoke to the chief clerk first and said I was interested. He went, right, okay. He said, we'll get you in front of the boss now. So I went straight in, literally, about 30 seconds later, for an interview with my commanding officer, who was a seriously top bloke, whose father was in the Special Air Service himself. And um, literally, that was it. I then put myself on a a, a physical training course. So the, the physical training yeah. course, is, that, is it the same as the SAS or is it not? Very similar. When I did selection for 14 int, we had a couple of Special Air Service guys join us the two or three week period because they'd passed their selection. Mm. They then had put their hands up and wanted to come to 14 end. Well, uh, so I just want to simplify this for the for the listener. Yeah. So sure. when you say 14 
end. And, yeah, 14 and intelligence. 14 intelligence. So yeah. 14 intelligence is basically the army's undercover... Surveillance. Surveillance, guys. Yeah. Okay. So if you're 14 int... Yeah, your surveillance. You're, you're undercover surveillance for yeah. the army. If you're through... Through, which force is FRU. Force, force Research Unit, you are a source handler. So... By source handler, we mean you're looking after yep. guys that are spies, basically yeah. people that are on the ground. They might be in the IRA that's giving you Correct. information. If, you, if you've got something, as a source handler, if you've managed to target and recruit a source who is in the IRA, that is seriously happy days. Mm. You can get a lot of good information. But family members but also you know, targets as well for recruitment. But like I say, I... I Finished in Cyprus, wanted to do something else. Didn't think that the SAS was up my street. And, and it's quite funny, really, because I never actually considered myself to be a pretty good soldier. Mm. <laughs> it, it, it just, me and the army, uh, just fell out. <laughs> so to get a job working undercover in civvies, long hair, never wearing uniform, living out in the community... Even though I was a soldier, it was fantastic. Yeah, it's kind of yeah, yeah, living the dream. Exactly, exactly. What about the? So we talked talked a little bit about the physical training. What about the the theory? Because I'm guessing that you had to be one of those guys that had could think outside the box in everyday situations. What sort of tests did they do? Did they put you in a room and see who took yeah. your opportunities, or, or what? What did I, they do? I, I mean, I. I you go through a resistance to interrogation phase, which isn't very nice because what they made us do was... So it's in case the IRA capture you yeah, and interrogate you. Correct. What they made us do is they made us go over a mountain in, in the Brecon Beacons called Panavan, came back. We were told that we were going to be having a, a barbecue and a few beers at the end of the day. Uh, wrong. That was like displacement of expectations because Smart. I was told by my boss, Rob, go and get uh, there's some mail in the adjutant's office for you. The adjutant in the adjutant is your boss, yes. right? Yeah. And so I walked through the door. Next thing I know, I've got six SAS troopers in full black sort of uniforms and hoods and the rest of it. I'm on the floor. I get cuffed up beaten around a bit, uh, thrown in the boot of a car and driven off. And it's like, hang on, I was just going to get my mail. <laughs> so then you go into a 24-hour period of resistance to interrogation. My thought on that was keep stum, say nothing. However, the, the, the policy and the thought is, is that... To stay alive, you slowly release information enough to keep them interested, enough mm. to keep you alive. To make you useful to them. Correct. That you do know something. Yeah. And so within a 24-hour period, if you, if you can release slowly information about stuff that you know, you're alive 24 hours. And hopefully by then... The cavalry would come charging in, kill all the baddies, and you can go home. So, but did you? So you just didn't say anything, though. Uh, to, to start off with, 
I kept absolutely stumped because because I didn't I didn't actually know what was going on. Yeah, it was you know one minute I was going to go and pick up a letter, next thing it I'm like being beaten around a bit, chucked in the boot of a car, and so it was a serious shock. But then I spent the next twenty four hours at the beginning of the interview, well the interrogation system. You get stripped off, you get doused in cold water, you get forced to put on a really tight fitting uh, set of overalls that like cuts into your nuts and and it's generally uncomfortable. And then you go through a process of an attractive lady interviewing you, but then making a remark about the size of your penis. Right. You then get another bloke who comes in screaming and shouting in your face. Each time you're released from each of these interrogation sessions, you are uh, handcuffed to uh, a, a, a duckboard with white noise playing on mm. massive speakers. So I mean, you're blindfolded anyway in between sessions. So, yeah, it was... Um, and it, Shit house. Yeah, mm. and it, it was quite funny because even after the 24 hours are up and I was told, okay... This bloke came in in, in uniform. Uh, he was an RAF guy, actually. He said, right, okay, the exercise is over. You're no longer being interrogated. I've got a couple of questions I want to ask you, and then you can go back. I refused to answer. I'd had my handcuffs taken off me. I'd had the blindfold taken off me. This guy was encouraging me to tell him my real name, my real background, uh, and I just would not answer a question. And then one of our instructors came in, and I knew him, and basically he said, Rob, he went, the exercise is over. He said, everybody's in the bar. Get a grip. Tell this gentleman everything he needs to know, and you can go to the bar as well. And so I thought, well, okay, well, he's the instructor. He's somebody I know. Give basic details. And then, like, half an hour later in the bar, um, and we had the next day off. <laughs> what sort of things specifically did they train you on? Like, because there's things like, uh, you talk about resistance interrogation, yeah. but there's another thing where you, didn't you have to go into a pub and chat people up? Yep. You talk me through that situation and, and why okay. that was important. Okay. The training and selection process covers you through first aid to the point where you are probably as accomplished as a paramedic, because you have to be. I went on various driving courses where we were initially taught by police advanced drivers and then by our own instructors. I mean, we, we used to leave the training establishment at I don't know, 9, 10 o'clock in the morning and we'd have lunch at the museum at Hadrian's Wall at lunchtime, having never touched a motorway. Right. Uh, I mean, we were doing 100, 110 mile an hour on A and B roads. And we'd get to a 200 mile journey to Hadrian's Wall, uh, to the cafe there, in three hours. What would most people do that then? A good six-hour journey, I would say. Jeez, on the main motorway. And, and that's if you take the motorway. Oh, you guys had the hammer down. Yeah. And Jeez. it was constant. 
You know, it's like, go, yeah, go, yeah, go, yeah, go, yeah. go. You do so much range work, as in firing weaponry, it's crazy the amount of, of, of ammunition we fired off. We did a photography phase, obviously, because part of our job was surveillance, so you take photographs of people in various places. At one stage, and any any soldiers listening to this now will go, what a load of bollocks. But I got to a point where I could get a 9 millimeter Browning pistol and I would get 10 rounds and I'd put every single round on a man-sized target 100 meters away. Decent. The thing about that course is at the end of it, when you pass selection and you go to the real unit to do the real job, you think you are indestructible? At the end of the day, you pull a weapon on me, you're the one who's going to die, not me. Mm. Because my training and my abilities are that honed that I'm never going to die. And, and I suppose that's the way you have to be. You'd want to be that way going into yeah. Northern Ireland. I, at that I, point. I had so much confidence in my own self. It was incredible. I, I, I almost used to go to work every day hoping that somebody was going to shoot at me because they're going to die. Have you ever spoken to anyone on a friendly basis that maybe would have been your enemy back then? Like, have, you uh, ever, have you ever been in the same room as someone that was in the IRA? Have you ever had a conversation with like, How do you feel towards those people now? Uh, I never I never really... How, how can I put it? I mean, sort of IRA, UDA... Protestant, Catholic, it didn't really matter to me as far as I was concerned whether you were on the left side or the right side. If you were a terrorist, then you were my enemy. And I don't care whether you're white, black, green, yeah. male, female, it, it, it doesn't matter. My job was to basically control terrorism and the ultimate task was to either kill or capture terrorists so you were in northern ireland and you're on covert operations yeah for someone that doesn't know anything mm -hmm. about what covert operations means yeah what does that mean in a nutshell like what are you doing right okay from a surveillance point of view we would get information either from electronic means or from human source means that would tell us that we, I don't know, for example, a, a weapon was going to be moved this afternoon from point A to point B, and then it was going to be used later on that night to kill an off-duty police officer. So we would get that intelligence. We would then go out on a surveillance task to follow that weapon or follow whoever was holding that weapon, whether it was our source or whether it was a terrorist, and just got to be careful here. I don't give too much away, and I get arrested by special branch tomorrow morning. <laughs> um, so we we knew where that weapon was at all times. Right. So we were able to keep the off-duty police officer safe because we could intercept the weapon at any time. Okay. Invariably, we would get to a point where we would request for the special air service troop who were resident in northern ireland 
to move in and take the weapon out. And it was their job that if the weapon was being held by a human being, that if that person got taken out as well, then so be it. I was undercover, I was covert, and had to remain that way. They weren't. They were there to carry out what was termed at the time as reactive operations. Who wasn't undercover? The, the Special Air Service SAS. troop. SAS. Mm. Yeah, okay. And uh, there was usually about a dozen of them in Northern Ireland all the time at any one point. And you would call them in and go, yep. you guys got to hit this guy. Correct. Because he's got a weapon and yep. it's going to this guy who's going to take out yep. the constable. Yeah. I can't show myself because I need to be covert tomorrow and the day after and the week after and next year. Did you ever see that in action? Did you ever see an SAS troop go in and take uh, out someone that you I, kind of ordered? I can't say I actually saw it happen personally. However, I was on one operation that I called in where I was about a mile away and just listening into the radio procedure and giving them information to be able to let them go in and do their job. So you'd kind of keep your distance when the shit yeah. went down? Correct. Right, fair and enough. When the job was done, I reversed out and went on. Day's work. Yeah. Back home for dinner. <laughs> if, as far as getting hold of a source yeah. and convincing them to come and work with you, yeah. tell me about the incident where it involved a young lady on the border. Yep, sure. Just after the Special Air Service troop had taken out a complete IRA active service unit at a place called Loch Gaul, which is quite a famous event in Irish terrorism. One of the people who was killed in that operation was a very well-known Republican. We had informants, sources, who were at that funeral, and they identified a girl who we knew was working in, in a skilling at the time. And so we decided that if she was at the funeral, apparently she was reported to have been visibly upset at that funeral, and so there was a connection there. And so we decided to put an operation together to get to know her, to target her, and recruit her as an informant. We managed to pick her up, coming through one of the vehicle checkpoints on the border, because she lived in Southern Ireland, she worked in Northern Ireland. She would get to the border crossing and then she would thumb lifts to go into work on on the Northern Irish Right, side. so she'd get over to Northern Ireland yep. and she'd hitchhike Correct. to get to work. So we got a car with me and uh, a female operator driving. I was in the passenger seat. Basically, when we were tipped off that she was on the road and that she would be looking for a lift, we were the next car out. Because the guys on the border held back any other traffic and kept them there to give us a clear run to go and pick her up. She got in the back of the car, no problem at all. It's what she did every day. In a nutshell, I had half an hour from the border point to go into Inneskillin. I had 30 minutes to be able to talk to her not so much to recruit her, but to at least meet me the following day. What are you saying to her? Like, uh, how are you doing this? Uh, okay, you, you put the charm offensive on. You tell the 
possible recruitee, that you work for a large and powerful organization, you tell them that there are certain benefits for passing information, like money, <laughs> and you try to instill in them that by getting their information that they will stop other deaths occurring, and that could be friends or family. I rattled away for a good half an hour. The girl who was driving, who was also another trained source handler, pitched in as well, and eventually, by the time we got to drop her off in town, she had agreed. Right, different scenario though, because she's now out of the car, she's gone to work. Did you give her any money at this point? No, 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 it was all just chat then, saying we knew who she was, we knew who she was connected to, she could make a difference, she could give us information that would save lives, etc., etc. It was agreed that we would meet her when she left work the following day, but that causes problems because she's connected to a terrorist organization and she knows where I am going to be at an exact time tomorrow on my own. You could be set up. Correct. The first meeting after a recruitment task is probably the most dangerous because you've told this person, I'll see you after work, half four tomorrow, I'll be on my own, there's nobody else around. In reality, I had, I don't know, about half a dozen people watching me and covering me and watching out for anything that was gonna be untoward. We had a helicopter with a full troop of guys, funnily enough, from the Royal Irish Rangers, who were a really good regiment. They were on standby, just in case, you know, the smelly stuff hit the fan. But I was on my own, out on a limb. However, strangely, I was absolutely 100% prepared for any eventuality and almost wishing it was going to happen. I know that might sound mad, <laughs> mm. but that was my frame of mind in those days. It was like, yeah, okay, bring it on. I made an approach on her. She ran off down the street. She ran? Yeah. She, as soon as she spotted me, she legged it off down the street. And if, if memory serves me right, she got into a taxi in a way. So why did she even turn up if she ran? No, she, she was. Just, I, I caught her coming out of her workplace. Right, I see. Because I knew what time she'd be walking out. So I made my approach. She recognised me, and that was it. She did a runner, and off she was gone. So we basically let it go, because you know, there was no way that she was going to come on board with us. Then what happened? In a rather naughty way, we had put Southern Irish registration plates on the car when we picked her up to make her feel no, okay, it's it's a free state car. Mm. The local Sinn Féin councillor uh, raised it all. We got sort of a slap across the wrist because what we did was, in a roundabout way, totally illegal. The local Sinn Féin councillor was kicking off about it. My boss at the time, who was a half-colonel, a lieutenant-colonel in the in-court, went, uh, well done, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> Crack on. Try again tomorrow. <laughs> you, you did. You did try again tomorrow. You try. You tried again a lot of times, and you found a guy mm. called Declan, 
How did he feed you information? He was a bit of a wild card, but he was very low-level information, but interesting. It's like putting a bit of a jigsaw together. When he would report that two people that we were interested in were seen in a pub in Southern Ireland, then it's part of that big intelligence background. So even though his input to us was quite low level, everything had a place. And he, I don't know, he was he, he was a bit of a wild card, I have to say. Wasn't and there a time where you thought that he might have been setting you up? Every day, every time I ever met him, I thought he was going to set me up. We arranged one time to meet up. He didn't turn up for the meeting. You know, there are things in place that you do for a no-show and whatever. I'd actually gone to a pub with the rest of the team for a couple of beers because he hadn't shown up, so that was the end of that. And then um, a mate of mine basically said to me, he went, uh, don't look around now. He went, your mate's just walked in. So the guy who was my informant, because he was late for the meeting, had actually come looking for me. So he'd gone round all these different pubs in, in Skilling where Protestants drank and knowing that, you know, police officers and soldiers and undercover guys would go for a beer and he came looking for me and I just looked at him and went, like, fuck off, <laughs> get out of here. Why is it so dangerous for you if he comes into your pub? Because he was known, he was known to the local special branch Special Branch didn't know that he was one of my informants, but there were Special Branch guys in that pub who knew him. What sort of information would he get you, though? He... <laughs> right, OK. This will probably uh, rock a few boats. I got him to put listening devices into pubs in Southern Ireland. Really? Yep. That, that might cause a political storm. <laughs> but it was like 30 years ago, 40 years ago, and I, I got him some listening devices to put into pubs in the south. He was, a, he was a TV engineer by trade, so he used to get these bugs that we bought him, and he put them into televisions, because that was his thing, and uh, so we could monitor, or should I say he would monitor those devices, and then report back to us. What Declan would bring to the table, you could cross-check it with other sources you had. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Yeah. One of the other sources who was working on similar information was a lady called Brenda. Correct. Yeah. Can you tell me about Brenda? 
Yeah, she was an absolute star. Probably my best informant. And she basically was well-placed in the Republican community. The Special Air Service troop famously took out, for want of another phrase, three IRA players in Gibraltar because um, it was suspected that they were going to carry out a terrorist atrocity in Gibraltar. The SAS troop were deployed, killed all three of them, and then, obviously, in the weeks after... And all three were unarmed, so there was controversy yeah, around that. there was controversy about and it. And then they found out they did have a car full of explosives. Correct. And then the, the SAS guys were all exonerated, so yeah. there was controversy around that. Yeah, and so the, the troop, as they were referred to, uh, had been deployed to Gibraltar, taken out the three terrorists, and as you say, I mean, even though they were unarmed, they, they were prepared and they were ready, and they had a bomb ready to go. So, obviously, over the next couple of weeks, uh, their funerals took place. At one of the funerals, two British soldiers in an unmarked car had, unfortunately, driven into one of the funeral cortege's and this was televised yeah. live as well, yeah. wasn't it? The thing was, was that the people who were attending that funeral were obviously all hyped up. They were all very, very suspicious of anybody that they didn't know. And then all of a sudden you get this car, drive in, and that was the end of that. The two guys were ripped out of the car. They were murdered. They were shot. They were stripped clean and left to die, unfortunately, on a street side that event is what turned brenda and a normal british army patrol had been out to her farm stopped and had a chat the guy who was the patrol commander when he came in in back to camp he came and spoke to us and said look guys i know you people are looking for intelligence you're looking for informants this woman is prime because she is so in a, a state because of these two guys who, who turned out to be British soldiers. So I went out the next day with a colleague and tagged onto a patrol, uh, went out in uniform, tucked my long hair behind, <laughs> up into a helmet, went and spoke to her, and that was it. She she was game for it straight away. and And she was a very, very well-placed member of the Republican community. There's a thing called a honey trap where mm. uh, a female will use her yep. sexuality to trap a male like a, and to get information. You suggested that she used Correct. this. Can you tell me what the story is around that? And yep. a guy called Donnelly. Yep. She, she was an old school friend of a guy that she, they were boyfriend-girlfriend at one stage, many years previously, and we knew that he was an IRA quartermaster. He controlled all the arms, all the ammunition, all the explosives in Fermanagh. And so um, I convinced her to re-establish her relationship with him, and because I convinced her that she was going to be saving lives, she cracked on and she did it. He wanted to marry her mm. at one point. Yeah, he was infatuated, totally. She was doing the sly on him the yep. whole time. 
she was shagging him under my instructions. Wow. <laughs> wow. To get information. What sort of information did she give you? Uh, she got information about weapons, where weapons were hidden and buried around the county. She got us information about possible locations for a next hit. No, it was incredible. Didn't she get access to his mail? Yeah. And who was sending him mail? Okay. Mail would arrive at his house. She would steal it. I would meet up with her on on the same day. She would pass me on any mail that he got in cahoots with the security services, as in MI5 and MI6. That mail was opened, read, closed, sent back. We had one letter. I got it over to London by helicopter that day because the security services thought it was that important. Unfortunately, being in the security services, they never told me what the contents of the letter were. I used to get that mail back to her, and then the following morning, she'd just drop it at his letterbox like, that's the day the mail arrived. In the meantime, that letter had gone from Fermanagh to Belfast, helicoptered across to London. The spooks would would have it. The spooks being the uh, security service. They'd have it. We'd get it flown back out, back to me. I'd deliver it back to her. Next day, that letter would appear in his door well. So once you leave Northern Ireland, you leave the army, Yeah. you eventually go into doing security and um, private detective work kind of, don't you? Yeah. So this was in the civilian world, essentially. Correct. What kind of people were you surveilling? Okay, high... Claim worthy insurance jobs. Okay. Uh, Allianz Cornhill, the insurance company, was one of my biggest clients. Clients. Yep. There was actually a story relating to that. Yep. Around a guy, a martial arts expert. Oh yeah, that was hilarious. We had a a, a subject who had a one million pound claim in for. Uh, he actually worked for a well known tire fitting company called QuickFit. Other tyre fitting companies are available. Um, he got hit in the hip by a piece of machinery that had come off the, the machine he was working on. He had got a million pound claim in against the tyre the fitting company, and that was that. So I was, well, me, me and a, a colleague were tasked by Allianz Cornhill, the insurance company, because they were the, the, the cover insurance, to go and put him under surveillance to find out what he was doing on a daily basis. And Allianz had arranged for him to go for a hospital uh, appointment. So we went up on, I don't know, the Monday, Mm. and out he comes in a wheelchair, neck brace on, all his family wrapping him up with sort of tartan rugs and making him comfortable, load him into this car, took him to the hospital, and then took him back home again after his appointment. On the surface, that was it. He was, like, crippled because of this injury. Following date, we put him under surveillance again for a couple of hours, nothing much going on, so we broke off and then went back in the afternoon. My mate, uh, Andy, who was the other surveillance operator, basically got me on the radio. He went, mate, get your arse up here now. You aren't going to believe what I'm looking at. 
And uh, so this guy was out on his front garden doing one-armed press-ups. Mate, you've got a I, million pounds at stake. What are you doing yep, there in the front well, garden? And the other thing was, when I took over from Andy, Andy had driven out of the area to allow me to come in to, to video this guy and to photograph him. Andy had gone down and parked up by the local like uh, social centre and gym. And I got out to have a, a cigarette and I was wandering around. And it turned out that this bloke was the local karate instructor and was advertising at the local community centre for his classes. So we stayed up there for a couple of days more. Basically, this guy came out of the house, went down to the, the local gymnasium. We had covert cameras and we had cameras in bags and video cameras in bags hidden away. And yeah. um, so we got loads and loads of photographs and video of him teaching local kids karate. Wow. And on day one, he was he was like mm, cripple in a wheelchair going for his claim. So when that went to court, obviously he, he turned up again at court in his wheelchair with the neck braces and all the rest of it. And the solicitor for Allianz approached his solicitor and said, do you want to go into an annex room? Because we're quite happy to settle out of court, which is a good thing, because it means that none of the parties mm. go in front of the judge, none of the parties have to conflict against each other, and the chances were, I'm sure, that this guy's solicitor was thinking, okay, so my client's going to get three quarters of a million. Mm. It's not the million. However, uncontested, job. Anyway, the Allion solicitor offered him one pound. And uh, he went, you're having a laugh. And he went, no. He said, I have evidence collected about your client. Showed him the photos, showed him the videos. Uh, me and Andy had already you know, done sworn affidavits and all the rest of it as court evidence. He did, however, get £30,000. Oh, so it was worth it then yeah. for him. Yeah, yeah, but and just it, not the mill. Because he did get hit by a bit of machinery yeah. and he was injured. But, you know, it's a it's a big lump from a million claim. Yeah, it's a bit of a step down, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, but we, we nailed him completely. <laughs> I wish I'd done that job on a contingency, actually. Um, yeah, you, you should have been trying to get a um, percentage of the money you saved. Rather than the daily rate. Yeah. But, uh, there were a couple of guys called Davis and George. Hidden, yes. That's a funny story. Yeah. That's an interesting story. Yeah. Can you tell me that one? Yeah, sure. I got a phone call from a, a good friend who ran an investigation company and said, we've got a case where the client, who was called George, and he wanted a guy called Mr. Davis put under surveillance 24 hours a day with a full team, and I was going to be the team leader. Money was no object whatsoever. So basically, I had a team of eight people working in the West End area 24 hours a day, Seriously nice little learner, trust me. And um, Mr. Davis, turns out he was uh, either a Saudi or Lebanese, but his, his code name was Mr. Davis. So 
George, our client, would ring me, God, every half an hour. He was also Lebanese. Have you seen him? Have you seen him? Has he come out yet? Where is he? Really? And no, nothing, nothing whatsoever. However, when Mr. Davis would come out, and I would ring George and say, right, Mr. Le Mr. Davis is leaving now. He's just got in his car. He's heading down uh, to Hans Crescent or whatever, because he was a great one for going to Harrods. As soon as I rang George, George would go into serious panic mode. He'd want to know. I mean, I was he was ringing me every two minutes. Where is he? Where is he? Where is he? Mm. The brief that I got was that they were going to go into business together and George wanted some due diligence done to find out on a daily basis what is Mr. Davis like. Who's he dealing with? Who's he speaking to? Et cetera, et cetera. Turned up that was a load of... A, a crock, really, <laughs> because George was having an affair with Mrs. Davis. Right. right. So George, your client, yep. was having an affair with Mr. Davis's wife. Correct. And all George wanted to know was, where's Mr. Davis? Because if I'm bonking her in a hotel on Sloan Street or whatever, I don't want him walking into the hotel. And it, and it was completely mad because the Mr. Davis family used to go to Cannes every year on holidays. And so George told me on the phone, he said, all oh, right, he said, I found out he's going to Cannes. I went, right, okay. I said, we'll take him to the airport and then let him go. And then if you want, we'll pick him up again when he comes back from Cannes. He went, no. He went, I need you and your team to go to Cannes to see what he's up to there. I mean, I'd already smelt a rat, I have to say, but then I was thinking, hang on, what's going on? This isn't normal. But it was rather nice because I was earning a serious amount of money out of this guy. <laughs> so anyway, we, we went to Cannes. We set up in some absolutely gorgeous hotel on, on the, the seafront. Had Mr. Davis under surveillance in the hotel, him and his brothers, used to play the roulette tables and, uh, and and all the sort of, you know, backgammon games and high-worth gambling. And I got a phone call from George. He went, what's he doing? I said, he's playing roulette. He said, um, I want you to go and get closer and find out what he's saying. I went, George, he's speaking Arabic. I'm Welsh. <laughs> this ain't going to work out, and I'm going to blow myself out. He went, right, okay. He said come round and see me. Turned out that George was in the hotel next to ours. So what was happening was we would keep Mr. Davis under surveillance. Mrs. Davis would go round to George's hotel during the day and do whatever they were doing. And as long as we kept him under surveillance and were able to tell George, she would then go and do a load of fast shopping and turn up back at the hotel with a load of shopping bags, which was her cover for having been bonking George all day. And uh, and it and it really was quite incredible. Mrs. Davis. <laughs> naughty Mrs. Woman. Davis and George, you naughty duo. But uh, unfortunately, that job then came to an end because uh, Mrs. Davis decided to go and live with 
George with our client. She left her husband. So uh, you weren't needed anymore. No, exactly. Uh, believe you me, mate, I tried like hell. I was going, can I come with you to Lebanon? I went, yeah. I'll drive your car. I'll, I'll wash your car. What were <laughs> some of the celebrities you looked after? What were they like at paying? Like People like Mel Gibson, yeah. Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman back in the day. Yeah, they were actually really nice people. I was working for a third party. They, they weren't my clients direct. Gibson was up in Scotland doing uh, Braveheart. There'd been a problem and his younger son had been threatened because Mel Gibson, being the person that he is, had been quite outright about his thoughts on gay people. It didn't suit the gay community what he was saying. So they threatened various things that they would do to his younger son. Okay. So I got a phone call uh, on a Friday night, about, I don't know, about sort of seven or eight o'clock, an old colleague who said, um, can you go to Fort William in Scotland? So I headed up to Fort William. My brief was to meet a film producer at a hotel the following morning for breakfast to discuss a security problem. When I got to Fort William, which was quite late on the Friday night, getting a hotel was just impossible because Rob Roy was being filmed uh, with Liam Neeson. Mel Gibson was filming uh, Braveheart, all in that area at the same time. Yeah, and if, if even if you've if you've watched Braveheart, there's a lot of extras. Oh, lot of, massive, massive, there's a couple there's a couple of armies yeah. literally. So, yeah, you wouldn't be able to get a hotel very easily. And so they had all the cast, all the crew, all the add-ons, all booked in. And, you know, Fort William, lovely place, but it's not that big. So anyway, I got there, didn't realise who I was going to be meeting because I hadn't been told. So the next morning, I turned up at this hotel, I don't know, for argument's sake, called The Klansman. <laughs> yeah, OK. Uh, just outside Fort William. And um, met up with the guy who was the locations manager, had a chat with him, and he didn't tell me who the client was. And then Mel Gibson walked in. So I went, hmm, right, okay, this is interesting. Mm. And he was a good, good bloke. His wife at the time, I have to say, could not stand my guts. <laughs> uh, and, and when I said to her, because it was the family that was more of a concern, not not Gibson himself. Right, okay. Um, and when I said to her, I said, right, do you want me to like just tail you or if you send me a message when you're leaving the house and I'll just keep a discreet distance? But give it, And she just looked at me and went, no, you go back to your hotel. If I want you, I'll call you. And that was the end of that. So you just what, had a holiday? I, yeah, basically. I'd spent two weeks up there, got really pally with uh, the local police Chief Inspector, we became firm friends and are still now to this day firm friends. And I had a seriously cushy time. I used to go up to the film set to make an appearance just so that Gibson himself would look and go, oh, there's that security bloke. Yeah, okay, he's you. Yeah. And, and I would go and take a check out of the place where the family were, purely for my own conscience. Mm. But, um, yeah, that was, it was great. Back when Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise were together and yeah. you were working with them, 
there was an incident at a roundabout. Can you tell me that story? It was a, a family thing. Crews and Kidman had adopted children, and it was more about protecting them from paparazzi than themselves, really. So, again, they a seriously nice couple, mm. uh, and it, they were great. He, he used to call me sir, and I was like, okay. and um, <laughs> You take it. Yeah. And so um, on some days, it, he had his own dedicated driver who'd been driving him. When he's in London, this guy turns up in this big black Range Rover, and he's Tom Cruise's driver forever. Yeah. I was his security advisor, basically. And anyway, we were heading out to one of the film studios in southwest London, and... As we were heading down to the Hogarth roundabout, there was a car broken down on the Hogarth roundabout, which was causing absolute mayhem. Is it word, yeah. yeah. And there was a, a young girl trying to push this car off the road by herself. Tom had said to his driver, he went, pull over, mate. said to me, he went, Rob, give us a hand. So we got out of the car. We were helping this girl push her car off the roundabout into a safe area. She was looking at Tom Cruise and then looking at me, then looking at Tom Cruise, then looking back at me. And she went, really? And I went, yeah. <laughs> and she went, my friends will never believe me. I went, never mind. Yeah. But, but Did yes. you say you were Goose and he was my friend? Yeah, exactly. But I uh, feel the need for speed. How did you go from this life to being in prison? Oh, God, right. Investigating criminals. I was working for insurance companies, law firms, high-worth individuals. I suppose it was the law firms, the old squeaky clean solicitors and barristers, who used to employ people like me to find out information about where their clients' money had been stolen. We had, for instance, uh, a guy in Spain who was a very credible guy. He targeted very wealthy people and basically took them to the cleaners. On that one case, of £30 million. He would present yeah. uh, an investment opportunity. Pro pro get, property investment. Give me your millions, yep. and then he would just disappear. He, he opened up an office in Mayfair that was a complete stunt he would fly people first class, put them up in five-star hotels in Spain, take them out in a chauffeur-driven car and show them a mountain and show them blueprints of what he was going to do with that mountain. He was good, this guy. I mean, he was pretty good. And um, they fell for it and put the money into investment with him. He then disappeared completely. You go to the showroom in Mayfair... It had all closed down. Nobody was there anymore. The managing agent had been cash paid up front for the shop. And that was the end of that. So we were asked by a solicitor client whether we were able to trace that money because her clients had all come together and there was about 10 of them who had all been ripped off. And would we be able to trace where that money had gone? And at the time, I had a, a very, very good contact 
who could blag uh, banks. He could blag phone companies for mobile phone data, banking details, the whole lot. I can say this now because I've already been to prison for this. So, hey, I don't think it's going to happen done, again. You've done your time. We did trace where that money had gone and we knew what investments he'd bought with it. We knew where the cash was. The solicitor was able to freeze those funds because they were then under a legal due restriction. However, what we didn't know in the background was that the Serious Organised Crime Agency were investigating a person who we were also associated with. And they could not get anything on him at all, but they'd spent a lot of money investigating him. And in a nutshell, my defence solicitor, who was a really good bloke, he explained to me later that because the Serious Organised Crime Agency had spent so much money investigating him... They had to have something to show for it. Yep. And me and my mate, Graham, were the next in line because we used to get information for him as well. So we'd come up on their radar and there was email connection and there was money transactions between us. And so I actually got tried and jailed for conspiracy because I didn't actually commit the crime myself. Right. I had somebody else who could do it. But I was part of the conspiracy. Strangely, though, the lawyers and solicitors, the ones instructing us, they were never pulled to task. How long did you spend in prison? I got sentenced to eight months, which is automatically halved. So when I got taken down, that eight months prison sentence automatically became four months. Why did it automatically get... It, it, it's the normal months? thing, because it was a non-violent uh, crime. You know, I wasn't a murderer or a rapist or anything. Yeah. It was a white-collar crime. So it automatically gets reduced that day. So it's basically the judge waving a big stick and going, right, you're going down for eight months, but actually you're going for four. Where did you go? Uh, Wandsworth. Fucking hell. Yep. I run past that. Oh, I used to run past that. It is the gloomiest, scariest-looking hey, piece the of architecture. <laughs> really, what was it like when you when you when you went in? There must have been the shittest day of your life. Awful, absolutely awful. Probably the worst day of my entire life. And obviously, given my previous background, I've had some bad days. Yeah. That that one topped them all. I remember being shackled at a handcuff on my right wrist and a handcuff on my left ankle to a rigid plastic seat in the G4S van. Windows are all browned out, so you can see out, but people can't see in. As we approached the the main gates to Wandsworth, I do remember it. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm 62 years of age now, and it, you know, I've had a really good, full, fun life. I remember sitting there and the van came in at an angle and I'm looking at the front gates of this prison and I thought, this is a joke. Sometime soon, I'm going to get out here and the judge is going to say, let that be a lesson to you. You can now go home. (laughs) But unfortunately, that never happened. Gosh. Um, So you ended up doing doing two months. Yeah. You, You get out and now your story 
hmm. is being made into a movie. Correct. Yep. Who's involved and how's that come about? Okay. Fishers of Men, I pursued, basically, or he will tell you I pursued, a guy by the name of Mark Huffam. Now then, as a person, he's not very well known as an individual. However, if I tell you that Mark produced Saving Private Ryan, Mamma Mia, The Martian, Johnny English, the first 10 episodes of Game of Thrones. I mean, so we are talking. He's a big dog. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. He's now my new best mate. Well, apart Oof. from you, obviously. <laughs> and um, he's a good bloke. So I was introduced to him, and I've been chipping away forever about, like, do you think we can do a film with this? You sure yeah. he hasn't just said, yeah, yeah, we'll do it sometime no, just to well, shut you well, up? Well, he, he won't like me for telling you this, but he's actually put some of his own personal money into it. Really? Yep. So, you know, touch wood. Thank you so much for your time, Rob. And, Absolute um, pleasure, and, and best of luck with the with the book sales and, of course, the movie, which is going to come out. When's it coming out? We are in what is now called pre-development, which means that the director, who's a guy by the name of Nick Ham, who's based in Hollywood, he would get a casting director... Him and Mark and the co-producer, a guy called Adam Ziff, will then start looking for cast, basically. Once we get some names to the cast, then we can go to the big investors and production companies. I don't know, maybe another year. Okay. It's a slow old business, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Well, your books, Fishers of Men and Like No Other Soldier, are on Amazon, so you can get your hands on those on the hard copy or an audio book. And make sure if you're listening to this interview, which you have to be because you're at the end of it now and I wouldn't be talking to you otherwise, give us a review if you like this interview. Wherever you get your podcast, just leave us a review. It makes a massive difference. We'll be back again next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.